0: interesting evening so far uh i just realized that i had not been recording for the past 40 minutes uh with my guest tonight but uh we are going to get this conversation right and we're going to do it correctly tonight but enough about technical issues and me being a uh creator brain i am here tonight with a very special guest someone who i very much enjoy and appreciate talking to and that person is fog brain how are you doing tonight fog brain
1: (laughs) I'm doing pretty good. I think we've had an interesting afternoon so far so (laughs) it's (laughs) great to be shooting
2: this shit with you Sam.
0: Okay for context for people you know listening uh, me and Fogbrain were talking for the better part of 40 minutes and then I realized huh I didn't hear the zoom telling me recording in process and I'm like uh well, this is so sure, uh, awkward. I have to stop talking. I have to tell Fog Rain to stop talking uh, and be like, well, we got to start over. So anyways, though, but uh, to get back as if none of that happened, um, I am very excited to have you on tonight because I, I think you and I have a very similar interest in games. We both think the same about games. You and I in many ways share I guess a similar brain when it comes to games, but also I am excited to have you on because you were on uh, I'm so popular last year, uh, talking about Kari Pami pomu which is one of my absolute favorite episodes of uh, Zach's show. It's <clears throat> me personally. I remember Kari appearing on the internet for me as sort of like the Japan invasion, seemingly, never ending for my childhood so i it was it was such a blast to like see her talked again in a very eye-opening and enlightening experience from you so i i'm very honored to have you on uh tonight to talk about on one of my favorite games so I'm i'm very much honored to have you
1: oh thank you very much it's it's really an honor <laughs> to be on this show which in the back of my mind, I really always wanted to be on your show anyway, because it's like, I, there's no other uh, podcast that's talking about games in the way that you're talking about games. And um, I'm glad you liked the, the um, I'm so popular episode that uh, I was on. It was a really fun time talking to Steven and Zach about carry upon me, Yeah.
0: It's a uh, uh, thank you. First of all, uh, I, 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 I I love doing my little show because it's like, I spent so much of my life thinking about games, learning about games, playing games. And they're such, you know, it's like that thing where it's like, where you, whether it be movies, TV, books, music, what have, what have you, there's like something that always just like clicks in your head and be like, this is what I love. This is, I have to spend all my time doing this thing. And for me, games was that. And it's like, if I talked about the games that I like playing, which were not what my friends in school like playing, which cause they like playing call of duty and Madden and any game of that sort of ilk. It's like, they probably like their eyes would glaze over sort of moment. Uh, If I talked about like NES with them it'd be like, what's an NES sort of thing. But I'm glad I'm very honored and thankful that you like the show, but yeah, I, I adore that episode. It's, one of my absolute favorites, it's, I think, an important episode on the show, too. I think it delivers not only Zach's message of the show brilliantly, but I also think what you, Stephen, and Zach were talking about, I think, is important in context with Kiari. She's such an animatic force, I think, for a lot of people in our age range. Like, we all knew about her at some point in time, and the sort of way she faded and then reappeared in this sort of weird way in her new album i think it was such like a cool moment for me to have this like full circle moment so i i i'm like very ecstatic to have you on uh but enough about that uh <clears throat> about the kiari episode i think you and i have a very similar taste in games Uh, We were saying before I started officially recording about our shared love of Hideo Kojima, our shared love of Metal Gear Solid 4. Specifically, uh, we were talking in uh, the DMs uh, yesterday about sort of the, uh, because there's a bunch of Metal Gear rumors kind of floating around of like they're remaking one and they're remaking three. And we were talking back and forth and it just made me think about how like you're probably like the only person that I know, maybe excluding one or two other people that loves Metal Gear Solid 4. Um, (laughs) Everyone, everyone on the internet seemingly despises that game with a passion. It it was the first game. I feel like people uh, wanted to be the first person on the internet to say, well, actually um, Kojima sucks and I've hated that take. I've hated that position about the man, about his games, that he's a hack, he doesn't know how to write, he doesn't know how to direct, he's full of himself, blah, 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 blah. And like M- MGS4, and I guess Death Stranding and MGS5 kind of fit in that umbrella, but MGS4 for me is like the, the, the origin point of people wanting to be smarter than that man. And I'm glad that there's someone that shares my love of 4, like you do, like, or like I do, whatever. Uh, yeah, I, I I always love getting a chance to talk about four and I will talk about four in the future. Don't worry about it. There'll be a whole Kojima-thon, as it were, in the coming months, don't worry. But I'm, I think you and I have a very similar shared opinion about four as a game, as a work of art. Yeah,
1: um, I think... P- I, that's definitely when it was initially starting to be a popular opinion of like, Oh, Kojima's gone off the rails. He is a hack because he's trying all these like new and different things that, and it's like, he's, he's now stepped over his boundary as it were, as what um, someone who's like in a tour of games should be doing. And that like his, his sort of leaps between genres and themes within uh his, within MGS four itself, kind of like, obviously jumped the shark a little bit too many people and I think that was just like categorically wrong to think that way I think that like that game in its own right is um not only like probably the biggest example of great (laughs) if not a bit maybe a little bit too excessive in parts of fan service and celebration of itself as a series for a lot of people who we're actually Metal Gear fans, but like mm-hmm. um, also closing out every single possible um narrative loop or Easter egg or sort of hint towards previous games in that series, giving all that it, it's due sort of moment to shine. And um, throughout all of that, you know, you're kind of, <clears throat> you know, mechanically, of course, like the game itself feels as if you are going through exactly what, Snake is going through as a character, you know, in terms mm. of his age and how he plays and the things that you you're capable and incapable of doing. Like for example, one of the major complaints I remember people had about it was just like, well, why can't I do all the things that Raiden can do in that game? I'm watching these <laughs> cutscenes, <laughs> with, with like such, and
0: which is like such fighting. a 180 from when people hated Raiden too. Like, yeah, I, I love the sort of uh, 180 that the fan base had, saying, well, actually, Raiden's cool, and I feel like Kojima's like he's both saying like, okay, I got to make Raiden cool, but what if it'd be great if it'd be like, now Raiden is doing everything you wish you could do in a very referential way about Metal Gear Solid 2. It's like when you play as Raiden, you want to do the things Solid Snake can do. And it's like, uh, it, I think people, I always have viewed Metal Gear Solid as like a soap opera especially since hearing Jack talk about soap operas and sort of long form storytelling and Metal Gear Solid four at the time, you know, this was before Peace Walker and MGS five existed, you know, MGS four was the massive culmination of a, at uh, basically 15, almost 20 years series at that point. And they were culminating the story of solid snake who had been going on since the eighties they're, you know, tying up every loose plot thread that they can can think of, whether it be from one, two, three, or the older games. Uh it's like this big, massive <clears throat> operatic level game that people can't understand the sort of logic that it operates in, and it kind of just makes people turn off their brains. I mean, obviously, because people condemn the fact that it's like more movie than game which is true like it's more it's more cutscene based and gameplay based but at the same time like the gameplay is arguably the best in the series at that point it's the most mechanically complex most in-depth system that the series had had at that point but also on the same point like on the same level MGS4 feels like just this epic celebration this amazing showcase of technology and artistry coming together for a series that I think so many people have come to love and uh, admire, obviously you and I included. And I just don't think people can understand a project that goes so ginormous that it just like makes people want to just go back to simple things. And I say... M- MGS4 does not call for a simple Metal Gear Solid one conclusion. It needs to be the biggest thing that it can be. It's going to have the most cutscenes, the longest cutscenes. It's going to have the most in-depth, mechanically deep gameplay that it can, and it's going to push the PS3 to its absolute breaking limit at the same time, with a uh, where it's like running more twenty frames per second than thirty frames per second. But it
1: still looks an impre- it's an impressively graphically like game. it, it still looks really good.
0: Uh, yeah, it's gorgeous. I mean I don't know if you've seen the footage of um, the game running on emulators now where it's like they put it in 4K, 60 FPS and it's like the best looking game ever. like uh, yeah, it upsets
1: perfectly to that to that resolution and and obviously you could tell that it was kind of developed for future reference in mind in a way. I think uh-huh. because not only from the fact that it obviously satirizes itself and sort of contradicts its own sort of uh, jumping between being ridiculous and also serious at the same time thematically, it's but also um, gameplay wise that because it is. Obviously a short experience. It's not a very long game in isolation. Um, and it's more Mm -hmm. set piece driven and the more open area stuff that we're more accustomed to from like three and stuff like that. That um, but there is open sections in that game, right? And I encourage anybody who has, has at least played it to go back and play those majorly the open sections of that game and tell me that like it is not. Um, less complicated than mgs5 i think anything that you appreciate about mgs5 mechanically gets itself from mgs4 and even then mgs4 does more things than five that i think a lot of people don't talk about enough Mm -hmm. because of that and that's just purely on gameplay terms Mm
0: -hmm. yeah i mean i don't think i want to get too sidetracked with mgs4 because we could talk about it all day yeah i mean (laughs) yeah i mean literally i mean i think i've made it very clear on this show that i am kojima's biggest dick sucker um but for reason (laughs) but but for good reason uh the man you know the man is one of the few in few examples of like an auteur doing what he wants to do and the games he has created not just in the metal gear series but like snatchers police knots um death stranding obviously most recently and whatever game he is about to reveal in the next few days who knows um but the man has 100 percent earned his status his sort of clout on the internet because he he makes games that are more than just like simplistic game experiences they're grander more they're grander they're larger they're more engaging they're pushing the industry and the medium forward i mean the man deserves everything but i will not i will cut off the kojima talk uh but i want to ask specifically about you fog brain because i asked everyone on the show this question is where does fog brains gaming history start because i'm genuinely curious to hear this albeit i've heard it Before a few minutes ago. So I want to hear it. I I want to hear this again.
1: Well, actually, I can tell you more, really. There's probably some stuff that I left out that I can definitely recall onwards. So my earliest memories is playing the Popeye arcade game. I think was my first game that I ever played. And that was at some random kids' center that was not too far from my neck of the woods. It was in a place that was like rainforest cafe but we don't have rainforest cafe here which with all the animatronic talking tree and stuff so it was a very jarring and also fantastical first experience with (laughs) video games as a medium Mm -hmm. and then um around that time my parents owned a super nintendo around when i was born and then after a time they kept it around so around that time i was i recall playing street fighter 2 turbo mm-hmm. as my first uh console game and that that was also at like barbershops in my area as well where you know you'd go in and I don't know they, they were pretty unique for the time and I don't think I saw anything like it ever again was it like you would go in and the barber himself had this like long as rat tail uh on his head of hair and in throughout his display cases in his barbershop were like figures of Godzilla characters and Uh, Power Rangers, Ninja Turtles, Transformers, uh, all these sort of different things that I had no idea what they were at the time. These were all just completely different um, concepts to me that I was getting familiar with by being around those sort of things. And um, so, yeah, that was a cool exposure. But then from that point on, sequentially, it's kind of difficult to determine what came first. But um, from that... Uh, my mum was a graphic designer and she owned a Mac computer. So that was where I first started using a computer. And so on that was a bunch of point and click games. So there was those uh, I spy um, ports of the um, versions, the game versions of the books that you would have with the really good photography by Walter Wick in them that I really enjoyed. And I was a big Freddie Fish and Pajama Sam Stan Still will be great games. Um, <laughs> and also, uh, I played, um, probably the first Mario game that I played was obviously Mario 1 and 2 around that time, somewhere with throughout my history. But I remember owning distinctly Mario's Game Gallery, <laughs> yeah, which was, it was the first Charles Martin A lines in a Mario game that was just yeah. for some random board games.
0: <laughs> it's and uh, I want to mention this is now week two of pajama stands pajama sam stands coming out of the woodwork, and I find that very charming and fun. Uh, but yeah, I've, I'm glad you bring up the Mario gallery because it's such like a interesting point in the Mario <laughs> the Mario universe, as it were, because like this was the early '90s as it, uh and mario as a sort of figure outside of games has started to grow and grow and now you have like mario doing you know talking to you for the first time and playing board games with you or mario teaches typing or the hotel mario game on the cdi or uh mario paint or yeah mario paint and it's like the sort of beginnings of like mario escaping just the concept of a video game character on the on nintendo platforms it's like now growing and growing to the you know to what we have now where he's getting his own movie uh but i love that you have personal experience with the those mario games because i feel like not a whole lot of people talk about them at least nowadays they don't i mean i remember like 10 years ago how like people would like post videos. Like, did you know Mario, you know, had a game where you played go fish with him? It's like, there's, there's a little chart. There's like a a nice quaint little charm to that period in games that I, I I genuinely do love.
1: Yeah. It's like the first sort of inklings of when, you know, uh, there was a generational transition between like the cultural consensus of Mickey mouse being the touchstone of like, Iconography in the Western world of entertainment that then got handed over to becoming Mario around that time. And from then onwards, it just became, yeah, what it is today, of course. But like Mm -hmm. from, so from that point onwards, um, I remember encountering my first uh, sort of experiences with Sega Genesis with um, Sonic the Hedgehog 2 at a friend's Mm -hmm. house. And they also had a Super Nintendo. So I played Super Mario Kart there. Um, And then, you know, conversely to like completely go off in a different sort of tangent in my life with games that my grandfather owned a PC and he was a very avid gamer right up until 2010, I want to say. And Mm -hmm. he owned a PS1 right up until the PS3 was a thing. And Mm -hmm. then only then he upgraded to PS2 to play different games. So he was a generation behind
0: potentially. (laughs) 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 but i love that too it's like he he skipped out on hd graphics he's like you know what i want the emotion engine in the ps2 and 480p 480i i want that instead
1: (laughs) you couldn't get it away from him mainly because it was like the games were getting too complicated by the time ps2 was becoming you know popular and also that he just loved the simplicity of playing like he was a big horror games fan he, he liked the um he liked the evil dead games on ps1 and obviously uh-huh. resident evil of course and dino crisis and stuff like that so that's like my initial encounters with survival horror as well around that time and that was also like with the pc stuff that was my first encounters of what was considered real pc gaming as opposed to the mac computer that i had so, so You know, initially there was the Disney games that you could play on PC that was just puzzles and stuff. But like, um, I played Commander Keen, uh, Monster Mm. Bash, the original 2D Duke Nukem games, and then Wolfenstein 3D. So that was like, you know, later on in years, I remember encountering Doom not too long after that. And then when 3D graphics were becoming standard for home PCs, that's when I uh, recall playing Serious Sam for the first time. Mm -hmm. And that was pretty much my that all contributed to my love of FPS as a genre and opened me up to this whole other world of games that I just wasn't aware of. And my understanding of what games can be and have been up to this point uh, was just a total blind spot for me until that, that I was actually playing them. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, what, what games would be after that was obviously radically changing every time, Uh, pretty quickly and I was coming across things outside of what I had was able to bring it home and soon enough Mm -hmm. I was able to bring them with me home Um, a lot of uh, PC games I remember playing at friends houses before I started getting into you know that proper PC gaming myself was like the these like low City Builder games, um, Roller Coaster Tycoon, Age of Empires, uh, <laughs> Star Wars: Empire at War, and Rise of Nations. So that was like the main PC games I was playing. But like the first ones I remember buying was The Sims because I was really fascinated mm-hmm. after seeing that at a friend's place. And but yet I couldn't run it on my PC because my PC wasn't good enough, so I had to go to my other grandparents' place just play it for 30 minutes to an hour, if I could, and then wait until I could come back to their place and I could play it Mm -hmm. uh, again. So that's my whole PC experience early days. But um, I'll just... Sorry, you go. You finish. uh, I'll just, like, quickly go over my home console experience. So, like, my first actual sense of ownership of a game was when I got a Nintendo 64, and my first own game was um Super Mario 64 for me and a lot of the mm-hmm. N64 library was pretty much my domain for a while until you know eventually I got a PS1 after going to friends houses and they were playing like Crash Bandicoot and all these cool uh racing games and one of the earliest memories of the PS1 that I have and you'll probably enjoy this one was before like I would go to, to like one of my dad's friends' place it was like a getaway home at this like beachfront uh, place. It was like very old style 1970s home with a lot of wood everywhere, I remember. And it was just like a cold night, warmish interiors and you know there was just glass pane doors at the back and and nestled in the corner of that room of the open lounge in that house was a small tv and it was very late at night and i just saw my dad and these other you know <laughs> his friends just a bunch of adults hunched over playing silent hill in just total nice. silence uh-huh. and i remember <laughs> walking up behind them looking at it and i was just like being in total awe of what i was seeing and it was just terrifying is you know you Mm -hmm. see just these adults just fascinated by this one particular game
0: it it, i i'm well obviously i love that that sort of visual that you have of silent hill like that that's kind of like a perfect way to experience it just like nestled in a corner on a small screen in an all wooden house from like the 70s like that's like such a glittering image to me but i I, (laughs) I, I what I love about your sort of gaming history is the sort of living within the PC world is you know obviously my show is centered around I mean the aesthetics kind of come from the PS2 era as it were but I think it's important to discuss sort of the PC landscape of the 90s because PC games of that time were it. I mean for lack of a better way to say it it was very a wild west you know you were getting such extremely different experiences than you were getting on a console, you know, on a console, you get sort of a contained experience as it were provided to you by the console manufacturer and their sort of vision for the system. But it's like with a PC, it's like, you know, everyone's got a different computer that possibly could play the game. Maybe it won't or, and all the towers are different shapes and sizes and colors, but the games that were available on it that you could play on your on your computer i think are such a fascinating window in time of the industry i mean you were talking about obviously like sort of the fps era of that i mean i have such a fond or or, i revere that era of fps because it really was such a cool and fascinating place to be i mean obviously the id games you know wolfenstein doom and quake have such a large impact not only on the sort of time frame that they were in but arguably tilts today i mean without quake we wouldn't have valve we wouldn't have half-life and we wouldn't have all their games so i mean that's just one element but i love that on the PC, you could be playing these games that have, like, these sort of horror aesthetics with, you know, metal music and fighting demons and these sort of far-off lands. And, you know, in Doom, it's, like, Mars, I believe. I, I can't remember. Yeah, it's Mars. But, like, in Quake, it's, like, these dark and oppressive levels of these, like, temple-like locations, and it's, like, scored by Trent Reznor it's all like exciting <laughs> and dangerous to play and then i love you know you have experience with serious sam i you know and uh i think and then obviously like i i when i think of these games too i think of like all the multitude of doom clones that came out around this time period of all kind of like mishmashing and aping off and com- you know their own sort of visual aesthetics and all that stuff and how there's like a little cottage industry of Doom clones or Quake clones or whatever you want to call them, uh, and then also, I mean, you were talking about Duke Nukem the 2D games, but I I think of like the 3D Duke, you know, Duke Nukem 3D, and it's just like, well, now I have a game that lets me see like girls take their uh, bikinis off at strip shows and blast aliens and crack off like really ridiculous one-liners, like it was such a exciting era of games that I don't think people really come to appreciate in the mo- you know especially in the modern sense you know uh this period is so cool to me. I mean when I think of PC gaming I think of like my brother playing all those strategy games whether it be the sim the Sid Meier sort of umbrella family of games whether it be C- Civilization or uh, the Total Rome games, like those sort of strategy games, or I remember him playing, I have fond memories of him playing Monkey Island on the computer he had. And I always wanted to play Monkey Island, but like, I didn't know how to, I didn't know, I didn't, it was like, oh, why isn't this on my PlayStation? This is unfair because this is so cool. Like the, the main character of Monkey Island is like the coolest guy ever and he's having a pirate adventure. And it's like, my dumb child, my child brain was enamored by this, and it's like I, I wanted to like break into the PC, at you know, uh, landscape as it were, and I, I love that you have such a personal history with it. It's such a cool little thing to me.
1: Yeah, I'm glad it really came across like all of these different consoles in like different degrees of uh, technology. Obviously, this was all happening at once because you know throughout that sort of time period in the late 90s or whatever like stuff was moving so quickly so the um the acceleration uh for what kind of propelled us into the 2000s and especially for the sort of year that we're going to talk about from when katamari was released that um, PC gaming around that time was definitely the foundations with how experimental it was in not only its genres, like the the sort of openness of its own platform and the higher degree of ceiling variation and potentiality of what, you know, gamers could experience, not just fidelity wise, but also um, aesthetically, there was a license given to developers around that time where they could almost do whatever they wanted really it was a lot of like garage band type development around that Uh time which you know in contrast you have like these varying degrees of sort of I guess developer um, creative license and also like what they're able to and what they're willing to do mechanically so you have like The enclosed space of you know the very restrictive hands of what nintendo wanted to do which obviously gives you a certain quality of game but then you go towards the ps1 which is like this world of electronic harshness attitude Mm -hmm. complete mischief towards its own development process and Mm -hmm. then above that is is pretty much where all of where pc gaming was Mm -hmm. happy to play with its own ideas and then you know within that sort of uh echelon you have the subcategories of yeah all those uh doom clones that they were able to play with um the doom engine once that was starting to get popular and then you know it offshoots and then that's how you get obviously half-life and and all the things that uh came out of that
2: Mm -hmm. um so yeah
1: it's like it's a very interesting time game as it doesn't get its due uh credit i think in the grander context of things Mm -hmm. especially when how it's set up immediately the following five to 10 years of games and mm-hmm. which in my mind and still kind of is probably the most creatively free and open period of game mm-hmm. development that's ever been and mm-hmm. i would like us to get to that point from even just an attitude perspective and not just that but also obviously development wise and how we approach our consensus on game design which is Kind of the whole point of why we're
0: talking about Katamari in a way. But uh yeah, totally. I mean to I guess to cap off this sort of talk, but like I don't think people maybe in the mainstream sense, I mean, if you're into games, you obviously know about like modding and all that sort of stuff, but it's like the concept of like modding your game or building a game because a developer gives you the tool sets and the engine that they were working with. And you can do, you could make your own stuff on your own. like the PC allowed that, allowed that experience to you. I mean, it was like sort of the closest meshing of developer and consumer that even though the, 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 the the foundation of it still exists in a way, you know, we're, companies are letting you download their engines and make games yourselves and games some games let you mod the experience still it really doesn't feel like it was in the 90s where it's like quake had the quake engine and then a bunch of two guys from washington get a hold of that and suddenly now you have valve making half-life and then half-life gives its tool set to developers and now suddenly you have counter-strike coming out of that it's like this amazing sort of like free-flowing give-and-take uh atmosphere of the pc space back then and <clears throat> let alone the games that are coming out in terms of like what people could do like just by getting an engine in their hands or mod tools or whatever it might be there's still like some really exciting experiences and like I think of, like, Phantasmagoria, like, just being that unique point-and-click horror, you know, game from, you know, Sierra Games, you know, one of the legends of the industry, Uh, you know, in that beautiful, gorgeous, big box case with the multi-CDs and all that stuff. But, like, I think in tandem with the PS1, really kind of embracing the more mature and edgy electronic aesthetic of that time period with the pc games being very one with its user base it's like that's where we get the ps2 era the xbox the GameCube, the ps2 and the dreamcast from like 1998 i mean i would say probably 1995 and maybe four but like from that like window mm-hmm. from ps1 to like end of ps1 early ps3 it's like that was like the the harmony of the industry where it's like you have small developers, like, you know, obviously like what we're talking about Katamari, like a small group of people making an out there game concept that takes, becomes a large and fan favorite entity for a a big company. But you also have like uh, the beginnings of the indie game community uh, taking shape, like with, I think of like alien hominid with uh, uh, the new ground scene and, eventually castle crashers or out there experiences that for established publishers like eternal darkness on Nintendo, which would not happen before then and probably wouldn't happen now. Like having a horror game consistently mess with the player sort of uh, experience that is still unique. It was unique then and it's still really cool now, Mm -hmm. but like, from the pc and the ps1 era like really just the the gates had been opened sort of thing and i think that segues into the first topic that i wanted to get into before we get into our game tonight which is katamari damasi uh is the concept of freedom in games and i and i don't necessarily mean the the freedom you get in like an open world experience like a grand theft auto but the freedom of getting a get you know you're you're a developer and you want to make a game and suddenly it's like now i have dozens upon dozens of different genres i could do or different stories i could do or different gameplay mechanics i could do i mean you could go down the industry sort of mainstream thing like a shooter game or a platform game or a racing game or an rpg or an open world game or an action you know whatever or you could be more a niche genre like a strategy rpg or in the case of katamari a roll a ball game or so i don't know how you would properly describe katamari but uh there's so many unique and ideas or possibilities that games allow a creative person an artist to do and i i kind of wanted to get your opinion about games being so limitless in their possibilities i mean I, i i guess you know what do you think about that concept of freedom in games, of freedom of games, as it were?
1: Yeah, well, I think because we were just talking about that window of time there was where it was like such an experimental period, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that gaming as a medium is very uh, community-driven because just by um, by virtue of it being such an unknown path In terms of what's potential, uh, what what is possible in terms of what we can do with games that a lot of it has come from bouncing off these completely esoteric concepts and ideas about what a game is, what kind of games we can make through this sort of uniform uh, landscape of the relationship between the player and developer, which now is obviously more corporatized and there's a bit of an actual distance there. Socially, there might as well be a pane of glass between the player and a developer now. It's it's much more insulated. But when we're talking about like the freedom of the kind of games you can make, um, it's really like it's, it's limitless, really. You, 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 there is no medium that comes closer to being more like uh like you're playing in within an, your own dream or somebody else's dream in mm-hmm. the same way that a really good movie is like watching somebody's dream but like you being the player in that sense you you're like the author of that um own story and the developer is like uh is the king of cosmos in the sense that they're uh-huh. just over the they're hanging over this and they the invisible and uh, with an invisible hand, they're guiding you through this experience. And um, in regards to what that could be, we I think too much of the nature of how games are made these days in terms of where the ideas come from, it being too derivative. Mm-hmm. And the the industry itself and its games are pretty incestuous. I think a lot of people would probably agree with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know we we need to have these ideas sort of stand on their own accord which mm-hmm. are, um we don't need to be based off of something else you know uh it we kind of want it to be have more of a unique visual flair and a unique sort of story it wants to tell but also uh, like at the core of that uh freedom comes from um the idea that like you can't you're making a game mechanically that is wholly unique and from that, it it creates its own sense of freedom, mm-hmm. in a way. Um,
0: yeah. <clears throat> Sorry. Um. Yeah, I mean, games are such... I mean, like, when you think of a game, I mean, obviously, you could ask any person, and they will have, like, when you ask them what is a video game, they're probably going to give you a multitude of different answers about you know, what a game is to them. I mean, games are such a open canvas to what you can do because, I mean, more or less games come from nothing, kind of. I mean, they're, they're it's mm. quite literally just like code. It's ones and zeros, and then you add, like, textures to objects, and you add music, you add voice acting. If your game needs voice acting, you add voice acting or motion capture or... Uh, you know mechanics or level design like there's so many different factors that make a game and you maybe not on the triple a sense but in the more indie sense you do see so many different ideas get presented to and as as games you know whether if they're games or not that's another question I, or another topic i think like you know when you were discussing it earlier it's like and I was thinking about this too, as I was thinking about the the man who made uh, Binding of Isaac. I forget his name. It's like Evan something, Evan McMillan or something. Yeah. But the point being is like, you know, that Binding of Isaac is a very out there concept of a game where you're playing as like an aborted fetus, more or less, like a fetus character, you know, running around these like nightmarish roguelike levels that never end as you're like in a shmup level type game where you're fighting all these monstrous enemies. And, you know, and I think about that man, him specifically and other games he's made. I mean, he was a part of Super Meat Boy, which is a straight up platformer. But the, the twist of it is you're playing as a blob of meat, like running around in an environment. And then I think about other games he's made where he's played, like he has a game, I forget it's what it's called, uh, it's it's blanking on me right now, but he has a game where you play as a literal aborted fetus, like, trying to, like, kill your mom. Uh, like, it's very dark and very... I mean, mm-hmm. it definitely comes from, like, that Newgrounds edginess sort of thing. But, like, that is a unique possibility that games can deliver in a unique way because you're interacting with it physically. You're, you have know you have to start the game you have to play the game to get the experience that the designer wants out of it and there's so many unique possibilities the game does and even on a more traditional sense like i think of shadow of the colossus um even though that game is like a third person action adventure game it's gameplay loop centers around you climbing these skyscraper monsters to deliver you know these uh severe blows to its body to kill it you know that that mecha- that sort of gameplay loop is different than the let's say like I don't know uh, like an Assassin's Creed where it's more just sort of these in you know one-to-one fights sort of thing where it's not it, it doesn't experiment with the idea of you're a you're a video game like mm-hmm. what can you do what can you explore like in preparation for, Katamari. I saw like games that the the creator of Katamari was inspired by, and he or games that he liked of in 2002 or 2003, and he was like talking about a game called Cubivore, which I've heard about. And Cubivore is like you're playing this cube little animal, and you have to eat other animal, other cube like animals, so that you can, uh, persuade your mate to uh, uh have uh have sex with you, basically. To like, you know, be the alpha animal of this world, and you're like this little box cube character. Like, that's an out there concept. That's, you know, something only a game can allow me to do, whether if I want that or not. It's, I don't think, I don't think like any game is explicitly saying, like, hey, I know that you want to play as this character and you want to do this and I have the perfect game for you. It's like kind of this Genesis of a creator having an idea, having an, a vision and saying, what can I do? What can I do to deliver this vision? And I, I always find I always find this sort of games that game makers make so fascinating and you see it on so many scales whether it be the ginormous AAA game or to the single person dev who's making an indie game and has spent his entire life making that game i i always find it so fascinating to see where these people are coming from how they think about the game how down to the simplest mechanic like it, it's such like a it's like a rabbit's hole in a way it's like once you like learn this person and how they think it's like now you fall deeper into their sort of i guess ideology about play in a way i don't know i mean mm-hmm. i've kind it's of just like ramon philosoph-
1: yeah yeah it's it's a, it's their own unique philosophy of what fun is conceptually mm-hmm. and that like i think the the through line of all of those sort of examples you listed like with uh, ed mcmillan's games that a oh, yeah lot that's of his- right. His his um his themes and like his core concepts stem a lot from uh from what I'm familiar with, a lot of his experience within his life, like being around, you know, uh, evangelical Christian background is that's where a lot of wet binding of Isa comes from. Yeah. And stuff like that. Right. So he so I think, you know, games itself, you know, obviously there should be uh an authorship to that game not just from an individual, it can also be from the team itself. It doesn't, you know, not every game has to be uh, an auteur-type game, although, like, it definitely helps with kind of consolidating the game's image and uh, sort of making that aesthetic all the more stronger. But, like, I, in my mind, and I've kind of thought about this a bit, that games are like uh, mandalas where it's a mandala of an entire studio's collective um, sort of conscious expressions about a game that are u- uniformly produced as the product, which is its obviously its end goal. And then the game contains elements and assets of you know the individuals who work on it, their output. And you can see that when when they show you, but uh, they show it to you in like the, their piecemeal sort of way. So it all um, contains elements of their singular contributions that come together as a collective contribution. And Mm -hmm. so the, the viewer, they perceive it as the whole, but as the game unfolds and you become uh, obsessed with the game and you start to pick apart uh, the things that make up what that game is. And then, like you said, it's big rabbit hole that really gets to the root of what is ultimately a psychological uh, impression from Mm -hmm. whoever came up with that idea initially. Um, you know, despite it being the powers of many at work, it comes from a select few or a singular person who came up with that Mm. idea. So like gaming was, and it still is from my mind, uh, it's an unmapped realm. And, you know, you can obviously make games like Assassin's Creed, like you were talking about, where you're basically putting a game within a box of what we perceive as assassination within this certain time period in history. What Mm. does that play and feel like? Or you can go in a completely opposite, really wacky direction where you're making, like, yeah, a Cube of War, a Katamari, or a Doshin the Giant, black mm-hmm. and white, these sorts of very out there, bizarre games. Um, and, you know, you I want to keep seeing us go in that certain direction, which is all the, this, this thing that is not really known to us, you mm-hmm. know, not in the path of what is already familiar to us and what's comfortable about the kind of games we like to see and play and there's a time and place for all of that i agree but like you know um these weirder games they don't have to be uh thematically or narratively challenging and they don't have to be completely bonkers either you know to me that's all secondary uh it has to be just visually and mechanically challenging enough to pull the player through that um the weirdness of it's initial idea that they get pulled through the, the looking glass and you make them accustomed to be as what the developer is accustomed to in that idea. So yeah. you become a part of their world that they've made, but you, it then in turn becomes your world and you mm-hmm. master it. And then as a creator, you like it's your imperative to destroy that. And, but you give the players to do that destruction so that, you know, your game then in turn becomes this permanent and dearly held memory that uh, of their experience perceived as something that it was actually real Mm -hmm. and it was tangible, but it's all an illusion. A lot of this is all just illusionary.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, games are such a fascinating way to get to the core of someone's ideas or beliefs or just themselves as a person. I mean, any medium, can do that i mean i'm not saying like games are the only thing that could do that like obviously every artistic medium can accomplish that but it's like with games it's a fascinating or to me at least it's a fascinating look into someone's thought processes what what makes them excited what do they find fun or engaging or what have you i mean games because games are so young still as a medium i mean The concept of like i guess a game as we know it today really has only existed since like the late 70s so it's still a very young medium so it's like there's still room for in you know unique creators to come through i mean we were saying earlier like kojima being one of the auteurs it's like you get with his games you get a look into a man who has a very set view on life i mean if you've played a Kojima game, you know that the man has been very moved and personally affected by death in his life and Mm -hmm. how he handles with death. And he works it into his games. I mean, Metal Gear more or less is a big, large-scale, epic way for Kojima to process his father's death. That's more or less what Metal Gear comes through. And you think of it as, you know, you try to analyze Metal Gear As a game, I mean, on surface, it doesn't connect to that at all. It's a military stealth game where it's all about not getting caught. And it's like, well, how does this relate to his personal life? But then you like get to experience, you know, the way he weaves it in is through his stories. These complex, you know, stories of betrayal, you know, backstabbing, double crossing, triple crossing nations at war with each other, you know. In the world of Kojima, like Metal Gear and Death Stranding or Zone of the Enders or Snatcher, Police Knots or whatever, whatever one of the games he's touched and worked on, you just get a sense of what he thinks games can do to kind of get at the core of his thought process. I mean, to go on a sort of point of you're saying like weird games, Death Stranding is a weird game. It is not. <laughs> it does not behave and play like a lot of games. It is a, you know, it's a game centered around being a delivery boy where, you know, Mm -hmm. tripping over a rock is a legitimate like obstacle that you have to endure and overcome. And it's like, is that a, you know, that's a, such a unique premise for a game that, you know, it, it, some people are turned off by that process. Like that that idea where the act of traversal through a digital world suddenly now becomes like the most harrowing and dangerous thing that has ever happened to you in a game where climbing a ladder not, you know, helps you, but like in the grand scheme of Death Stranding, it helps hundreds of people, maybe even thousands of people who are playing the game at the same time. Like, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, Kojima is a unique example of seeing, what he defines as a game and obviously there's so many other game developers that once you kind of peer back the curtains of their brain you get a fascinating glimpse at a person like i you know Mm -hmm. suda 51 comes to mind where it's like the man is like a walking pop culture sort of uh like a sponge where he has taken influences from across his life and he injects it into his games in with some you know over the top crass humor and visuals, and he is whipping off one-liners and references to things that he himself finds enjoyable and and likes. And but like for an example of like no more heroes, it's a game about like an action game using a sword basically, but at the same time you have to do mow the lawn for somebody. Like that's such a yeah. an interesting. <laughs> Again, it's such a weird concept for a game, but learning and peeling back Suda51 as a creator, you get a sense of his definition of a game. And you see that with every sort of big-name creator, like Shinji Mikami or uh, Hide- uh, Hideki Kamiya. Kojima, obviously, Suda51 or even Miyamoto or any one of, like, the Silent Hill director. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Like, that's kind of, like, the fun, I think. (laughs) Maybe it's fun to me, but, like, the fun of, like, learning, like, where do these creators think, what do these creators think can get their ideas across in a such a blank canvas medium that is gaming?
1: Yeah, it's, like, what what do they draw from mainly from their life experiences and their life themselves that in turn imprints uh, how they feel about it and sort of their philosophy on what fun is Mm -hmm. through how the game is played. And none of that at all is explicit. I mean, if you obviously research this stuff, it becomes explicit to you. But a lot of this is implicit within its design that You actually learn a lot about these developers through their design. And it's all part of the authorship around games that sort of ties into how much possibility there is in terms of that freedom of expression. It's completely limitless. And that's why, you know, we shouldn't technically bog ourselves down into what we you know, we don't need to exactly define what fun is, nor do we need to put games as a medium in the, into their own box mm-hmm. and also derive itself onto other mediums all the time. Like my, obviously my biggest bugbear about games is like it's drawing too much on what currently television and film is rather than being uh, concerned with what it, it, it itself is. And I think there's a lot of um, sort of, reflection and growing that needs to be done from uh a lot of developers' sides these days where they should start thinking about this stuff in the terms that you know we don't necessarily have to be the exact terms that we're talking about right now but like it should be pulling on this invisible thread to them where it I mean it's the same thing you see the same thing in, in film with in with auteurs of their own caliber like Orson Welles and Hayao Miyazaki made it pretty clear in their opinion that overindulging in too many films or anime, uh, which causes you to lose sight of the true purpose of going out of your way to make any sort of animation or film, which is ultimately to tell human stories and draw from life itself. Conversely, games is the same way. You know, you play too many games and all of your life is just games and your whole life is just that, that like you don't really have any sort of outside interests or hobbies or life experiences that you know, if you as an aspiring developer wants to be, you know, mm-hmm. it just doesn't have the same feeling, you know, that is equally as passionate about um, as you making games. You Ultimately, you'll just end up copying other games, really, which yeah. there's uh, definitely a lot of that in games that come out these days, which is, again, it's fine. But if you really want to kind of um, have your stamp on, on medium itself, plus also, have, um, if you really want to impart a special experience upon the player, um, you really have to kind of take some ownership of your ideas in that sense and really pull on something that you are completely unfamiliar with. And a lot of that does come down to um, experience and familiarising yourself with all manner of games and also things outside of games because I think yeah the blank canvas that gaming has as a medium is so much more wider than potentially any other medium purely because of the interactive element of it and that you know you as a developer are able to put in a lot through behind the curtain and through this illusionary element that mm-hmm. you can basically impart a lot onto players in that you would otherwise not be able to do in any other medium like with the whole concept of like think something like death stranding turning something that we take for granted in games which is like traversing a world and then making that world traversal its own gameplay element and is in fact the core gameplay Mm -hmm. element of it flips the entire um concept of what we've familiarized ourselves in games and turns it on its head and then gets us to think more about what is tied to the thematic elements of something like Death Stranding, which is all about struggle, death, cataclysms, all these sorts of things that we Mm -hmm. kind of, we physically feel, but like, obviously that's hard to impart on somebody unless you do your best, mechanically speaking, Mm -hmm. to uh, impart what it feels like to struggle within a game. And uh, like that imprint of an idea does go back to something like, I'll use the example again, Metal Gear Solid 4, like when Snake is going through the, the radiated heat hallway thing and you've got that whole cutscene where you're pushing <laughs> the the stick forward. But then he turns that into an, an entire game about struggling with the concept of weight and responsibility and all these sorts of things. And that's like that's just a taste really of what games can do. And yeah. if we if we think about it in these terms, like believe me, like games could be absolutely anything. And we need to be more open to the idea of that.
0: Yeah. I said we wouldn't talk about Metal Gear Solid Four, but goddamn, the <laughs> micro, the, mic, the microwave hallway is like one of the best sequences in any game I've ever experienced. It of all yeah. time, like to go off your points, like how do you convey the feeling of struggle? In a game, I mean, obviously, certain games do certain things, but Kojima is like, okay, I'm going to put you through a scenario where it is mashing one button for a solid few minutes while split screening the view as you're seeing all these characters being put through the absolute hell above while Snake is just crawling for his, you know, life, really. And it's just like, that is all you need. It's just mashing a button to keep yourself going as you see everyone else struggling to, you know, win this war as it were like, that is just masterpiece. I think. And I, I always think about the microwave hallway scene. It's one of my favorite things, but uh, the, I guess to <clears throat> wrap up the, this sort of freedom discussion before we go into Katamari, it's games are such a magical, what you know, <laughs> In this moment i think of little big little big planet uh which i don't know what your i don't know what your opinion about little big planet is i i have a special connection to it um but like the they have like a narrator introduce that game and it's like the imagisphere or the dreamscapes or what have you like and you know little big planet is about basically giving you a bunch of tools to make your own game levels and in many ways, that's how I kind of feel about games is that there is truly limitless potential about what you can make, what you can play, and whether or not, like, I mean, that comes down to you seeking it or a developer wanting to make something different. I mean, I think games are such a fascinating medium, and when they are allowed to experiment in whatever way they want to, whether it be a unique gameplay loop or a story that is thought provoking or, you know, engaging or any sort of, I mean, it could even be down to the visuals being different than any other game. I think like of the game echo Chrome, which is black and white, like, uh, those, uh, drawing mannequins. And it's just on like a visual, uh, illusion levels and like that's the whole loop is like you're walking Mm -hmm. on this like illusion you know optical illusion uh blank space in the void but like you know that's a unique and inspired decision to have like that be your aesthetic and or you know there's there there's seemingly infinite things you can do in games and it really comes down to the sort of creative minds behind it and i think that segues into our game of today, which is Katamari Damashi. I've caught myself this week just humming along the Katamari theme just like no 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 I was doing the exact
1: same thing for the last two days I'm just like no 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 (laughs) no
2: it's
0: it's so fun Uh, this game Katamari just makes me happy you know I you know obviously I've played Katamari In the past, but like recent, because I went through this game. I mean, it's a short game too. It's like you can beat this in like one night if you if you have the time. But like, this game came. I decided to play this game again just because you know it's fun as hell. But like, it came at the right time when like the timeline became like apocalyptic with the Balenciaga thing, and I'm just like, I just want to (laughs) roll balls around.
1: I know. Like, who cares about all this other bullshit that's going on? I just want to play Katamari and just roll up all this nonsense into a ball and flick it off into space. Who gives a shit about any of this?
0: Yeah, it's it really feels like a world in of, a, in of itself. Like it it feels separate from everything, despite it being also very real at the same time. Like it's some which is a in, incredible because the game has such a distinct and uh zany look to it. I mean, I guess we can transition into uh the game. Uh so the game we are discussing tonight is Katamari Damashi or Damasi, whatever you want to pronounce it as. Uh it is a PlayStation 2 game. Uh also was re-released uh in HD on the newer consoles recently, but uh it recently ca- it originally came out <clears throat> uh September 21st 2004 for the PS2 it was a PS2 exclusive made by uh Namco Bandai or you know Namco at the time uh it was directed by Keita Takahashi uh a very sweet and cute man uh who I adore his Twitter presence we were sharing tweets of <laughs> him uh last night where he's like I don't know how to use Twitter but and that's okay uh I'm uh getting he, gray hairs, and that's yeah. okay. <laughs> uh he's a wonderful, sweet, and very a very unique creator in games. You know, he's known for Katamari, but he's made games like Nobi Nobi Boy, which I remember hearing about Nobi Nobi Boy back in the day. I never got around to it, but I remember that was like his first big game after Katamari. But you know, he's made other games since then. Most notably, he made a game called Watam uh, a few years ago. He's also making a new game as of right now. But Katamari is a very simple game. Uh, to say that it is pick up and play, I think, is an understatement. Uh, you play as the prince, or sometimes he's called the uh, prince of the cosmos. And he, <clears throat> the game is set up in a very fun way where... Uh, his dad, the king of the cosmos, one night got drunk and destroyed all the stars in the universe. And he destroyed all the stars in the moon. And uh, the following day, he is uh, hungover, and he uh, tasks his son, who is very short, by the way. They like to rem- his dad likes to remind his son how small he is, which is <laughs> another endearing quality about this game uh contrast but, to the like
1: cataclysmic size of the king of cosmos himself he's yeah, like it, gigantic
0: and his son is just like i think his son i think they said is five centimeters tall or something it's it's very just very goofy and silly but also very cute but yes yeah, his always the king of the cosmos and uh entrusts you the prince to rebuild the stars in the sky uh by rolling around a ball and collecting household objects anything basically that your ball can stick on and roll around and the whole point of the game is to basically roll your ball to a specific size under a time limit there really isn't anything else to katamari gameplay wise there's a few little wrinkles you know there's certain challenges you have to do it's like all right, we need to rebuild the Taurus constellation. So we need a cow. You can pick up any cow, but I would like the biggest cow. If you know how to, you know, precisely move your ball around, as it's like two meters high and you're rolling over people and cars and street lamps and buildings. You got to find the biggest cow, and it's mm. like, I mean, that, that, that at least in the first game, that's the only sort of complexity that it has. But um, I, I adore this game from every single level from its gameplay to its visuals to its music to everything about it and so i want to ask you fog brain what is your history with katamari
1: i have a very strange history with katamari because it's really i've always observed katamari from afar because the game was not released in my country because publishers thought it was too quirky for the market
0: (laughs) with yeah and and for reference to It also was viewed that like that initially for america because they thought it was going to be too out there of a concept uh but eventually they were persuaded by it but i'm surprised australia took time to get uh persuaded about katamari
1: yeah so we didn't get the original game we only got we love katamari which was the follow-up to it and Um, I don't think I ever encountered it on any sort of store shelf there it was such a um, I don't want to say it was an uncelebrated game but it was basically unknown for a long period of time I only knew it through pure osmosis about how much you know the Americans were celebrating it and like really enjoying its quirky Qualities and visual style, and and obviously you know everything about it the, from the music to its gameplay and everything. So like everything I know about Katamari up until the point where the and I, it's so sacrilegious to say this, but I didn't play it until Reroll came out, um, mm-hmm. which is unfortunate. So like my history with it in terms of gameplay wise is quite short, but it, it was always a game that I really wanted to play. Mm-hmm. And um I just I just couldn't because it wasn't in my neck of the woods to go get it really. And I never saw anybody um playing it um around me or anything like that. It was just purely through like watching um retrospective top ten lists on like game trailers about how good oh, the game yeah. is.
0: <laughs> A fellow game trailers fan, yes. Oh <laughs> dude, I
1: was big Big on game trailers back in the day on the forums and stuff like that. I love that site to mm-hmm. to no end.
0: I, I it's sorely missed today. Like mm. I, my God, I I miss. I never was active on the forums, but like I was just active on the site in general. Uh, I miss the days of stuttering Craig and Handsome Tom uh, <laughs> doing their top ten videos. I remember because I mean, like AVGN was also he started there I think, or he has videos on there. Mm. Uh, and then just sort of the general game trailers coverage stuff you would see. I, I, I'm just glad that you also uh, were a fellow game trailers fan back in the day.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, it was like basically the only immediate uh, sort of land landmark point of kind of orienting about like what the rest of the world is interested in game wise at the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, there's other game sites like you could go to at the time, like GameSpot and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, going, once you're, like, it was becoming more and more normal to be online and games coverage was becoming more of a thing, that's when you kind of became more uh, receptive to different kinds of games that just weren't popular in your country because, like, every country has its own sort of interests of games that they're into and stuff like that. And, um, yeah, I guess with when it came to, like, really weird and bizarre games like a lot of the time they just never released here most of the time. So anytime I wanted to like uh, get into something that was kind of out there at the time, it just, I had to either wait or um, buy like some sort of Chinese version of the game.
2: <laughs> like that
1: was the the first time I experienced uh, Demon Souls was through a Chinese copy of the game because oh, it didn't wow. release here um and so and the only way i even knew about that was through i think screw attack was talking about it
0: mm-hmm. and i was
1: like i have to get my hands on this game and yeah. so
0: yeah that, that that arguably is the only way i figured out about demon souls because game trailers said it was like one of the best games of 2009 uh mm. uh but yeah i i love the because I've had uh, Alex on here twice and he's sort of been my Australian correspondent. Uh, <laughs> it's always fascinating to hear about the games landscape in Australia. You know, famously your guys's ratings board is strict as hell. I remember I've known that for a long time, but it, I'm shocked that Katamari never came to you guys. I mean, Damasi didn't come to you guys. I mean, uh, Damacy, I mean, it really did kind of become like a cult game. And then the franchise really kind of blew up in scope and size. I mean, <clears throat> it started off, obviously, as a PS2 exclusive with the first two games. And then suddenly it started to come to other platforms, You know, like Beautiful Katamari was on the 360 or Katamari Forever was a PS3 game. Like as the series got bigger and bigger, obviously it got more and more outreach, and people started to really enjoy the series and all that sort of stuff. But I I I'm actually did not know this about Australia never getting it. But I will I will note that the re-roll re-roll is a good remaster because it's more or less the same game in HD and Katamari's very simple art style translates very well, I think, to modern TVs. Like mm-hmm. I, I really don't think that they I think they did exactly what they should have done, which is just porting the game over to modern systems so that more people can play. Uh, And it's on all the modern systems right now. So I highly recommend if you don't have a PS2 to get re roll. Um, But Demasi is such a simplistic game. You know, it, it very much reminds me of when I was talking about Spyro, you know, Katamari does not present itself as some sort of grand epic story, or it doesn't have like a Demon Souls or a Bloodborne esque deep gameplay mechanic. It's a very vibe game. It's not about. Mm. It's about being absorbed into this world of the prince rolling around a ball in houses, on streets, in parks, and uh, cities. You know, it's a combination of so many different small elements that kind of just kind of created a perfect game in a way. Which makes sense when you hear the story about this game's development. I mean, the idea some of the elements of Katamari had existed from a failed uh like action game, I believe it was called that uh Keita was talking about, like called Action Driver. Uh, I mean, it was, which reading... inspired
1: by uh crazy taxi i think and then oh, yeah, that's it was where their... he had the initial ideas for the king the queen and the prince yeah it's like the, that's where they got their hammerhead shape which kind of doesn't really explain itself in Damasi, but like no. <laughs> it, w- it would be like he the prince would like hit somebody on the head apparently and then they would like drive the humans around by putting a steering wheel on the back of their head and he felt that that would lead to like this sort of interesting creative gameplay allowing the player to create like all this havoc uh as the prince followed by the misguided suggestions from the king of cosmos which you know then turned into damacy later
0: it's it's such a you know inspiration comes in many forms and from places you wouldn't expect and it's like amazing how damacy much like the games of its era because like to me, Damasi reminds me of games like Amplitude and Rez and Mm -hmm. Alien Hominid and you know, these sort of indie games with a very out there premise but they're so structurally found and firm at their core that it's like everything around it is like, you know, the greatest sort of diner experience you could ever get, like I mean, Takeda said that the inspiration more or less came from seeing kids play Japanese school kids playing a game where it was about rolling a giant ball around. And then another, uh, a prototype game where a young character floated between power lines to houses. I mean, and then to think that that's what created Katamari is such a fascinating thing. I mean, I mean, it's like Katamari exists almost separate from everything else. I mean, no other game really has tried its ideas since then or beforehand. And it's amazing how like Keita himself really didn't want to like keep going with this idea. It's like he had more ideas to do and he only did the sequel because like they said, we're going to do this with or without you sort of thing. And his idea of a sequel was to comment on the fact that people love the first game. And it's like this weird, like self, this like looped feedback loop of these two games. And, uh, but Katamari Damacy is like, you know, it it very much is like the epitome of the immersion factor that a lot of games strive for, you know, people think of immersion as like, the greatest visuals and greatest soundscapes ever and it brings me into that world but it's like katamari to me is more engrossing and immersive than like i don't know my greatest nemesis game horizon forbidden west like i'm more (laughs) i'm I'm more captivated by katamari you know in this in this unique eclectic world that it presents on paper i mean the game starts out very simplistically teaching you the controls which the controls are very unique to it you know you use your two analog sticks to steer this ball around and it feels kind of unwieldy to control as the ball gets bigger and bigger but that like adds to the charm and uh, like the tension as it you know tension in quotes uh well i mean there is actually some tension but um you start off small like just rolling around this house and picking up matchsticks and erasers and mahjong pieces and like as this mm-hmm. very unique soundtrack that is a combination of so many different genres that somehow works mm-hmm. like you have like frank sinatra inspired inspired jazz pieces or sort of poppy like j-pop-esque songs like it's such a unique environment that it craps for itself it's like a scrapbook kind of kids toy world that it drops you in and it's just like all about engaging with the world in a way you know granted the npcs in this game don't do anything until you roll them up and then they start yelling, screaming at you like being picked up by a giant ball but like katamari puts me in this world so effortlessly where I get to learn about like all the little discarded pieces and you know bits and bobs all across this house as I'm like suddenly now rolling up the the house's cat like it's this like really beautiful like crescendo moment that the levels all always get for me you you know you start off small and then suddenly you're big and rolling around like parts of buildings and streets and it's like such an enjoyable experience to behold like it makes me truly happy every time i play it
1: it yeah it's a really unique uh quality that it has that it's the escalatory nature of it being when you play a singular um mission or whatever you want to call it in katamari to make one constellation where you know it starts off in this small like family room yeah and you're just like rolling up things that are obviously very mundane to us that then has this like objective quality to them. And then as you sort of grow out of that and then you've rolled everything out of that room and then everything that's in the backyard and then suddenly it's going towards like rolling up bigger things and you're rolling up the whole neighborhood. And then as part of the, the game as a whole, like the the size and scope of what you're rolling up and, and doing with the things that are just like cluttered and strewn all about these different Mm -hmm. levels just keeps on growing and growing and growing and so that like the the flow state that you achieve from just its simplistic controls it allows you to really just like jump in and get really immersed with it also like in contrast to um the 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 very placement of where you are in this particular world that is it's essentially our world but it's presented in such a weird and zany way where it, it it transfixes the The mundane everyday object into being um, something so much more than that and like the game just like keeps extrapolating out of this simple idea like it just keeps on going really and then like there's really no end to that satisfying quality of when you do uh, achieve a particular mission or when you do finish the entire game I just remember like that feeling of gratification just kept on like just rolling itself up into that yeah like a snowball effect that once you get to the end of the game like the the sort of bombastic nature of it becomes a lot more like um theatrically moving in the sense of like how how much you kind of take stock of the the whole sense of everything that there is all around you um just by sheer nature of it being the everyday Mm -hmm. and And you wrap all that up in such a unique game in itself with how it controls and um, how much the game kind of like eases you into it. Like from the very start, when you boot up the game and you select which save file you want and you have to use the game's controls, just select that game file. Immediately introduces you to the, the (laughs) the core concept of the game. And then um, once you're playing the first mission, it's like, it's, yeah, it's just baby steps of how it, really progressively gets bigger and bigger and and more and more and it's like it's such a it's such a really like refined idea that it takes to its furthest possible extent and it does it in such a way that feels completely natural and it's like I remember the moment that I picked up and finally started to play this game for the first time I was like instantly knew I was like this is like one of the the best games I've ever played period um Mm -hmm. yeah and it was it, just like so singular in its vision and its quality that it like it all just comes through so naturally you know
0: yeah it's a game that feels effortless in its execution which a lot of you mm-hmm. can't say a lot about games because like you know if i were to put on the the critics glasses as it were like you know i i could find a fault in every game but when a game transcends its own quote-unquote problems or issues it's like that's a magical experience and katamari Damasi is so unique in the fact that it it's such a simple idea it it doesn't over it's welcome either it never it doesn't mm-hmm. bog. it doesn't bog you down in sort of like meaningless extras or bonus missions it really just kind of feeds you through this natural progression of going from rolling up the household items to suddenly now you're rolling up islands and tanker ships and skyscrapers and Godzilla, literally like you're rolling up like Godzilla monsters in the final level. (laughs) Like there, it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like a ludicrous overstep of the developers to get to that conclusion of the final level to make the new moon and i think what another way that the game accomplishes this is in the side story that takes place while you and the king are like kind of conversing between each other in the loading like in the you know when you select a mission you know there's the side story of the family going to see their dad who's the astronaut and the kid and the son who keeps like noting like hey the stars are gone like hey like oh You know, he's like pointing out like the sort of absurdity that's around him, and his mom just says like, "Oh, that's great, dear. Don't worry about it." Like, (laughs) it it kind of, it kind of just like works in tandem to build up to the sort of ludicrous moment where it's like we have a new moon, and the family got rolled into the moon, and now the sun is like, "See, I was right," and like, it all feels earned and like earned and natural for the world of this game to end up making a moon and like suddenly this family is like yeah whatever like we're living on the moon now that's fine like it's such like a a brilliant little just like statement piece on things and what I also uh, it's like I'm gonna be listing a laundry list of things I love about this game because it's that good it's like I love the very pastel blocky almost like rudimentary visual of visuals of these games like you know the ps2 was able to produce such you know pretty extravagant and lush games graphically and you know all that sort of stuff and katamari is like walking around where like characters look like minecraft you know characters and you know they have very bizarre animations where they're like you know, just, like, walking, like, with their, like, stick legs and, you know, cars are probably no more than, like, five polygons or whatever, but, like, there's such a beautiful little charm to that, like, and I think, you know, that, that visual aesthetic that this game embraces, I think if any other developer would have done this style, I think it would have come off as very like lazy, but like in the world of Katamari this makes complete sense. Like uh, it's so weird how like every little quirky or every little uh unique decision they did with this game, it's like it works. Like there's no questioning it. Like in 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 the mind of in my mind it's like this is you know this is the this is the game that i had been waiting for forever but i didn't know i needed sort of thing
1: yeah and it's hard to tell like when you know the the results of their work is like purely intentional or it's accidental purely because of like the the weird development that was around this game like the the way that everything looks with the blocky toy like um sort of uh very cubish type modeling of everything is is purely because uh takahashi was able to get students from the um the i think it was called the namco digital hollywood game laboratory
0: students
1: that were being taught around that time and so the artists that he was able to get from that were just like purely new to 3d modeling type students that were able to work on the game
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and and he was able to only get like a very small amount of like it was like three programmers three visual designers and the rest was all just like vocational college students and it was it's purely because he put such a a a direct stamp of authorship and direction and really really keeping the game as simple as possible with its emphasized concept of like novelty how easy it is to understand and how like um immediately enjoyable it is from like the the sort of gameplay loop that it incorporates with its it i mean it's purely just like a big power fantasy in a weird way it's like mm-hmm. i just want my katamari to be bigger yeah. and then in in turn with that I, i'm just perpetually feeding that that desire to just roll everything up and make it mm-hmm. like turn all of this mess this chaos into some sort of uh, <laughs> orderly fashion that's mm-hmm. done in a chaotic way that um yeah it all just comes through so seamlessly that it does seem very intentional even if it was an accident yeah um, yeah. Ado-
0: another thing too and this is just for context too because you're saying how uh, Takahashi had a very small team he also had a very small budget in terms of games like even back then in 2000 you know 2 3 and 4 he had like less than a million dollars to make this game which obviously sounds like a lot but for games that's very small like Most games are, you know, at least, you know, maybe like 10, 20, 30 million at the time. And he was only given like sub, sub a million dollars to make this game. And it wasn't sure if it was even going to like sell remotely decently in Japan, but it feels so larger than its budget would say, or its development team would make you believe like, Every level has its own little just purpose where everything is placed. I mean, sure, it looks like absolute little you know you know clutter all around a house or the streets or whatever, but like it all feels genuinely put there for a reason. You know, it adds to this sort of immersive quality to the game. Like, and this even goes to even the more sort of out and i say out there for katamari and it really is out there there's like the level you know the one constellation level where you have to roll around all the goose eggs to get all the (laughs) goose or you have to roll around all these twins they're in the level like or you have to roll around all these beautiful objects which just means they all have crowns on them like yeah like that that's out there even for Katamari, but it somehow works within the confines of this digital world where, yeah, it makes sense that this town is full of twins or you, this town is full of girls that you have to roll up because it needs like pretty energy or whatever. Uh, and this even speaks to the sequel too. Cause I was playing the sequel earlier today. Like there's a level where it's like, you have to roll around flowers, like just pick up flowers for the ball and it mm. makes complete sense within the 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 rules of the universe and I, it's like if this game had any more put to it i mean if it had any more put to it i think it would have been almost too much but if it had any less then it's like well i then i wished it did this or did that or whatever but like it finds this beautiful little mo- like uh uh convergence of style and gameplay and like you said kato wanted this very novel and easy to play fun game and like it really does suck you away into its universe And, and it makes you forget everything around you in real life i mean as i said earlier it's like i forgot about everything that was happening to me at my job or you know at home or whatever katamari was my world which in a fits within the game sort of like goals it's you know create stars and create the moon and planets or whatever and it's like you create your own little katamari world inside the inside the console and in your hands like it's it's a direct feed into your hands which i guess that just adds to the magic of this game like um I don't. I don't know. It's like it, Katamari exists almost entirely by itself in its own category because I can't think of many games that elicit such joy in a way that I forget about everything. Like you know, they say games are escapist, you know, uh, medium where you you play a game to forget a bad day at work. But it's like Katamari is like that, but even more. So it's like I don't know, like. I'm smiling just talking about this game it's just so full of joy to me
1: Mm, yeah and the way yeah it just like sucks you into its world through the presentation as part of like that ease of access to kind of like not be too confronting towards you um with you know and especially given in context around the time in 2004 and stuff like that I just remember like that Shibuya Kai style of artwork with pastels and very understated art direction. And uh, I mean, given Takahashi's background in like sculpting and visual arts, it, it, a lot of it makes a lot of sense in terms of that accessibility to people. And in turn, as well as like the the um, sort of the grounding backdrop of the story of Katamari with the family, it really puts you into the the sort of um or inspired wonderment of a child's perspective and it kind of reduces every facet of reality into making things a lot more simple and understanding life in a simple way and that it kind of leaves you at the end of it all when you finish the game and you roll the moon and all of the countries in it in the uh the credit sequence as well which is really <laughs> fun uh <laughs> it it like leaves you with this like oddly existential quality to it. But at the same time, it's like, it doesn't leave you existential in like the depressed sense of like, oh, isn't it it just, it's just so infinitesimal and small, this little ball we live on and blah, blah, blah. It's more just like, man life's pretty cool and like it just everything that's surrounding in life from the mundane and stuff is really just like fascinating really yeah, and if yeah. the, if that's the way you get to like perceive it and you make a whole game out of that and it's like you're also coming from the background of like this is a namco game so and you think about all the arcade games that namco is able to produce like uh you know your Gallaghers and your Pac-Mans and all that sort of stuff it's still in that same vein of what Namco is known for as well yeah so it like it, it manages to balance all of these different qualities about like what makes Katamari dynasty so brilliant that it's like it's purely singular and it, it exists within its own realm and its own genre and its own qualities mm-hmm. that uh that's what makes it such a brilliant game really and it's just all that in just being such a simple game too it's crazy
0: yeah it like you said it on paper if this was any other developer then i would question like this doesn't fit within the sort of like established catalog of the past you know but for namco this somehow feels like a namco game to me i mean Mm-hmm. Namco obviously is known for the Galagas and the Pac-Mans, but you know, and they're known for Tekken and Ridge Racer and all, you know, all that stuff. But like Katamari feels well also feel you know, it feels like a a Takahashi game, but like at the same time, it feels like a Namco game. It's kind of it's wonderful to sort of see Namco being able to produce some something like magical and joyful even as they are an established company with established experiences and games throughout their entire history. Uh, But I, I think, uh, you know, I I was talking about the soundtrack earlier, like the soundtrack, by the way, is honestly probably one of the best soundtracks to a game ever. Mind you, it is. I was saying earlier, it's sort of eclectic mishmashing of genres and styles and all that stuff. But like, even the songs themselves complement the levels they're in, like, and they they reinforce the sort of this, you know, existential joy that it brings out just to roll your own ball and create your own little world in your own hands. Like there's a song in the game that's more or less literally just sounds like a straight Frank, it might even be, but I don't know. It's like a Frank Sinatra song or it sounds like one. It's like called Gin and Tonic and Red Red Roses, I think is the song title, which great name for a song, by the way. Uh, But it's like the lyrics are like literally talking about you, your actions in the game. It's like, all I want to do is roll, roll you up in my life or something like that. It's, it's very, (laughs) he's like, you know, I, I just want to be a star in your life. Like, it's so like... Cutesy and cheesy and a little bit cornball-y but like it's it's magic. I, I I I'm just like, I think it's like every little bit of this game just makes me smile. Even the fact that it's like, even how the objects interact with the Katamari themselves. Like it'd be one thing if like the game just had like you know it has it has that like weird little you know break sound that you pick up an item, but mm-hmm. like it like certain items have like sound effects attached to them like a trophy has like a shining sound effect or a cat yeah. meows when you pick it up or when a like a like a a crab picks it up it like starts freaking out and shaking or if you pick up like a schoolgirl she starts like giggling to herself or uh if you pick up like a like a, a mother or father they start like freaking out obsessively or how some of the cops will just start shooting the Katamari itself. (laughs) Like there's so much like interaction with the game or with the mechanics itself. And there's so many games where like interaction doesn't factor into the experience where it's just sort of like the, the fact that I did something and the character did something on screen means like, Oh yeah, that's interaction. You know, you, I think you and I had this, We like, I think we replied to each other to a God of War post where we were saying like the God of War the new God of Wars feel like they have no impact or no connection to the world itself where it just kind of feels like you're doing animations with like sparkles and blood and all that sort of thing but it's like Katamari everything you pick up feels like you are interacting with it it very much reflects the interactive medium I mean you pick up items and obviously it, it adds to your ball, but it, like it incorporates, like if you pick an oblong object off the ground, suddenly now your ball is like, you know, woo, woo. like it, it feels tactile and very grounded and real in this very surreal landscape. It, it's, you know, few games. I mean, there's obviously some games that reinforce the interactive, but like Katamari is, it's such a simple way that they reinforce that you are interacting with objects in the world that it's just like, you it feels effortless and masterful when you know, it's like more or less just simple gameplay design being, being applied here. And I don't know if that speaks about modern games where it's like, they've forgotten about it in favor of visual flourish because that's just enough nowadays, but you know, having a game world react to your inputs or your sort of things adds to an experience. Like, you know, I think of like GTA 4 and like how your character, you know, Nico reacts to certain things. Like if you crash a car and you're in the car, you get sent out of the windshield. Or, you know, if you shoot an an NPC in the game, they act, they realistically react to being shot at different parts of their body. Like if you shoot their arm... They suddenly don't can't use that arm anymore, and they'll still try to, you know, interact with you with just with their one arm, you know, and then you look at GTA 5 and they remove that and it feels kind of mm-hmm. hollow as a result. You know, Katamari is such a great example of game design being applied in a way that
2: it, in many
0: ways it kind of feels like a, a template for like if you want to make a game, look at Katamari. You know, it applies basics and fundamentals. In a way that isn't like complex, like a, like a, I don't know, like a, like a Bloodborne is complex, but it still feels in that same realm somehow. I don't know. I I might be ranting here, but I, it's I, I'm amazed that like for a first time run with this concept, it feels like they had been working on this concept for 10 years, sort of say
1: yeah it's it's like everything that was sort of a precedental backdrop of what games were perceived as kind of found its logical conclusion in terms of um simplicity in its design but also like um showcasing the the sort of core ethos of what game design ought to be in terms of like trying to maximize the most out of the most simple concept imaginable and if you can uh, complicate that further and make a sort of better and bigger game out of that, then that's great. But like <laughs> using, like you said, using Katamari as, as the template yeah, example. No, it's all good. Uh, using Katamari as a template example of like what makes a really simple and effective game by, you know, having the tactile element of it, having the nature of its game um, being like something that doesn't really need to be overly explained. It comes very naturally to the player because it's very like, um, it's, it's very based off of natural movements and stuff like that. So like just the simple use of just having absolutely no other controls than the control stick for the for the game is mm-hmm. purely enough to to get the most out of that. And if you can sort of, make new games out of that such a simple concept by building on top of what Katamari has done, then that's, that's great. But I think um, the, it comes back to it having the tactile nature of it where it's like the feel of the controls, the the sights and the sounds and the sort of immediate feedback that you get, where it's like, well, now that I've rolled up enough things in my Katamari, then the Katamari is now bigger. Therefore I can roll up even bigger things. All of that has absolutely no need for explanation in its gameplay. It's just like known to you intuitively. And that's what it all kind of, kind of comes back to when it is in terms of like getting the most out of games is that you really want to like into it as much as possible uh, in terms of like the the mechanics of your game, that the player kind of picks it up as they go along. And there's no need to kind of sit and bog down and overly explain the complexities of how this system works and blah 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 like the moment you try and like systematize things a bit too much Mm -hmm. and you put it into a box that's when you know games kind of then becomes a lot more like becomes a lot more surface level really where like a lot of the back end is doing it for you and Uh you're kind of just being strung along a certain path and it's like even the most like presented as open worldish type game then becomes like a very mechanical process Where there is like mm-hmm. Adamari, it, it just like it's open but it, it a lot of the placement of the objects and the um the sectioning of the levels where it's like you start off in one area that has all of the objects that you need to then go to the next area that you need to get even bigger objects and then as a result of that, the end point of that level, when you have something that's like big enough that then the entire level opens up. And it's like, that is just purely natural progression. Um And I'm kind of like ranting a bit. <laughs> no, like, it's fine.
0: It's Katamari uh, brings us out, out of us.
1: Yeah. yeah. It really just creates the, it's the perfect demonstration and like no pun intended. It is the perfect de- demonstration of a snowball effect on game design when taken to its like
0: simplest extreme Mm -hmm. it it, i'm glad you brought up sort of like the most open world of game can eventually start to feel kind of like robotic and mechanical you know i think of like the oak the ubisoft open worlds of the last few years where it's like sure you have this large open landscape to more or less do as you please but at the end of the day, you start to get into a rhythm of doing the same thing over and over again. And the game kind of just tells you what to do sort of thing. But meanwhile, Katamari feels so much more freeing and open, you know, and it never, it just, from the first time you like pick up those first few objects on the table in the house in level one, you suddenly realize it's like, okay, I want to be able to roll up the biggest thing in this room, you know, you know, I want to be able to roll up the TV, or I want to roll up like all the stuff in the garden, or you know, in the the game logically keeps giving you like little bits of more stuff. It's like, hey, this oh, your katamari is this big now. Hey, you can go to this new area of the level that you couldn't get to before, and there's a lot of bigger things you can get here, and your katamari will get bigger, and then you can now roll even bigger. It's like it's such a natural progression of how this game just drip feeds you everything you need and interlaces it with such like a story that is like it does exactly what it needs to to reinforce what you are doing in your hands but then like you just have like this like dynamic of the king of the cosmos with by the way that man has the most pronounced bulge in the gaming history if i might say so uh, it's that, very
1: David Bowie and lapworth type bulge. It's yeah, very the, pronounced and the, out Like
0: the, 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 the king is quite the most he's quite a flamboyant man. Uh which I love also that like they like to emphasize how like, yeah, him and the queen are such a in love couple, like they're inseparable. But it's like the the king has a very like almost like uh it's like a gay element to it that I kind of love. It's like his outfit is like skin tight. He has the biggest bulge that is constantly on display th- throughout most of the game. He's like getting drunk and like, you know, just like, you know, just having a good time. He's just like, yeah, I'll just make someone else do this for me. Like, yeah, you know, I'm just going to, you know, tease and make fun of my dimin- my my teeny tiny son uh who has probably who has not seen his mother like there's there's like a very like campy aesthetic to it that like i i adore that like the game just rolls with it but the king the king is such a fun character like he Mm -hmm. he's pretty much your sort of vehicle outside of the family he's your vehicle into the 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 rules and universe of this cat of the world and it's like he has such like a dismissive attitude to so much of it where it's just like all he does throughout the game is just like say good afternoon in different languages he's like hey have you gone here well i did uh (laughs) isn't that great uh you need to roll this up because uh you know uh i messed up last night uh it's not my deal but it's not my problem though it's your problem Uh, (laughs) it's like and oh, man the king the, and, and i love in the sequel too that the king's sort of like flippish uh flippitness and like uh ego his ego is inflated even higher like to the point where it's like com- it's like adorable in a way like you know cuz the second game is more or less kind of like uh commenting on itself being a sequel to Katamari Damacy So, like, the premise of the game is, like, everyone on Earth suddenly loves the king and the prince. And it's, like, they keep saying, oh, can you do this for me? And the king's, like, eh. And he's, like, constantly spacing out and not caring. And then the character is just, like, oh, you're so beautiful. Your chin is incredible. Uh, And he's, like, huh, my chin, huh? I'll do this for you. Prince, go do this. It's, it's, uh, (laughs) oh, my God, it's such it's such like a confident belief that this will work like any other game would have probably like tried to play up the goofy nature in a way that's like cringy and not in a fun way cringe like i can imagine this being in the hands of like a western developer and them playing up just like look how wacky and crazy this Mm. is the king is just a douche or sort of like (laughs) he just he hates his tiny son it's like you know but like in the hands of these developers in the hands of Keita Takahashi in the hands of everyone involved on this project it's like they earnestly and wholeheartedly believe that this is exactly what it has to be in order for it to work and guess what it does
1: it does. Yeah. Like the, the and really the king of cosmos is like the linchpin of like incentivizing you as a player to do better because every time you don't roll up a Katamari, that's as big. He's just like, Oh, well it could be bigger. This will do for now as a star, but like we would like it to be much more shinier and bigger, you know, do a lot better next time and all these sorts of things, even as you're like playing through the game is like, Oh, you've done your, uh, You've you've done your initial objective. This is nice, but uh, I would like to see you do better. Anyway, back to your work. I'll leave you there (laughs) as as you finish up. And he always, like, just the way he's, like, written and the way he speaks, like, he always does his, like, collective wheeze when he's talking about something. And, like, he's got, like, this constant awe of all the things that are on Earth, yet he has this massive indifference towards everything. It's just, like... (laughs) It, it's really just a simplistic simplistic writing for him. But at the same time, it works because it, in turn, it makes him such a more like endearing and complicated character because you don't know
0: everything about him. And he introduced and they just keep adding on to it. I mean, I think it's safe to say this is one of the funniest games I've played. Like, you know, yeah, humor in games is such like a tricky line to balance, I feel like, because you could fall really hard into the Borderlands 2 camp of like mm. being a Reddit game, like Reddit humor, or you could be. I'm trying to think of like other comedy, like games that are explicitly trying to be funny, like in the. I mean, or maybe like they're just funny as part of the aesthetic, like Katamari. And I can't really think of any other game that kind of gets to that. I mean, I think of like Ratchet and Clank. In a way, but like Ratchet and Clank's more about the sort of story and the dialogue being the humor. Like, sure, obviously, like the king has a lot of funny interactions with you as the prince slash the player, but like the gameplay itself is by nature funny. You're rolling around like a little blue, like this multicolor, like ball with like smooth, smooth nub edges. And you're like picking up like uh, you're picking up just like little bits of food and like toothpicks and erasers and batteries. And then by the end of it, you're rolling up like frogs and crabs and fly- like sunflowers and uh, traffic cones. And like by nature of that, that is funny. Like mm-hmm. I-, I wouldn't <laughs> humor is such like a tricky line to do with games because. Because of it, it's like interactive nature. Like, you have to set up something to work to be funny, and like once, I, like the board, like if the board in like Borderlands case, Borderlands is just trying to do like, you know, like the epic, uh, like oh my god, that's just so epic, fuckity fuck fuck or whatever, like that's you know. When I say it's Reddit, it is Reddit the the game. Like it's obnoxious, but like in Katamari's universe, it's almost it it's almost like a grand comedy. But it's never like telling the player to be like, "Hey, this is the time you're supposed to laugh," sort of thing. It's just like mm-hmm. interacting with the game itself is a funny act. Like I I don't know. It's this
2: game
1: is like, so good <laughs> it's like the nature of itself is is ridiculous like that the core concept is ridiculous and the way it like carries itself with such uh indifference towards all of this ridiculousness is makes it in turn more funny and i think sort of i think at the core of it being funny in games like you said is like probably one of the more difficult things to do and i think the only way to achieve that is by kind of you know not not winking and nudging the audience to the extent where you're basically like breaking the fourth wall at any turn that you want to and just like pointing out like isn't this just ridiculous what we're doing like it's just so funny
0: a lot of games do do that like they just point Mm -hmm. how absurd what they're what you're doing is and it's like and it becomes grating to me like i'm willing to put up with some cases like i think ratchet and clank is a humorous game but i'm never like you know actually like laughing I'm just like oh that's kind of that's cute that's funny like i'm never like i'm just like okay you didn't know how to incorporate the funny <laughs> you didn't know how to incorporate the funny into the game you had to kind of keep it separate in cutscene world or something i'll be actually no well Ratchet and Clank actually does incorporate into the gameplay because of the weapons, which you know the they have like the weapons that cause like enemies to just start breakdancing. That's kind of funny, but like, yeah, I think I I guess this is the Borderlands two shitting hour because I do hate that game. <laughs> I I think they took a very solid premise from the original game and just said like, but what if this was like constantly telling you how how great. It is how funny it is how stupid it is that, that you're playing this like you know it, it, it uh, modern funny quote unquote games that are funny almost treat their players like they're just like maroons like playing the game yeah. like it's like i like feel they like
1: become the butt of the joke essentially because it's like you you're perpetually stuck and it's like such a disease within the last few years of like game writing in general, where it's like this obsession with being meta all the time. And then also making the player the butt of the joke, because it's like, we're way more meta than you are and like isn't it funny that we're pointing this out before you even realize it
0: yeah you're playing a video game like yeah
1: we we need to point out the fact that you're playing a video game constantly and isn't video games stupid and a waste of time and ridiculous like and (laughs) and it's like it has to come through the gameplay of what you're doing is ridiculous you can't just write out a, a line of dialogue and be like you know Uh, isn't what you just did ridiculous like it again it's such a fine line of how you handle this and it has to be done in a way that's like I mean at the end of the day all of this humor is ultimately child like it's childish but at the same time it's like you have to treat it with a kind of um, humility in that childishness where like you know in when you play something like Yakuza right the humor in that game is is very childish but at the same time it's like it comes across with such a good natured humility to it all that it, it becomes a bit self-effacing to itself where it doesn't the game itself isn't putting itself in a position above the player uh, in, a, in a power dynamic sort of way where it's like you know me the developer or the writer is is imposing their their meta commentaries on the on the player's experience it's like why don't bog yourself down with this this garbage? It's well, just not funny.
0: You, you you make a great point in the fact that the gameplay has to sort of reinforce the the humor, and like in the case of Borderlands Two, Borderlands Two is a sh- FPS about finding basically rare and better weapons and equipment, and you just do quests all the time. I mean, in That's not a funny concept. That's a very bog standard experience, and it stands in such contrast to the first game, where it's like Borderlands One was a very you know it's like a Mad Max sci fi world, where you're going around trying to you know the whole point of that game is like trying to find the 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 vault with the, the greatest treasure in the universe or whatever, and it interjects like funny sort of like kind of just off the wall sort of characters and you know here and there to kind of add to the Mad Max aesthetic but it was never like you know telling you like oh it, uh, an infamous thing in Borderlands 2 that made me groan even as like a 17 year old I was like they referenced the double rainbow meme and I'm like like <laughs> why like in what way does this work or in what way do you think this was good and it's you know I, maybe I come from a position, and you probably feel this too, as a fellow game trailers person. The fact that it was written by a former game trailers person, in uh, Anthony Birch, you know, from "Hey Ash, what you playing?" Like uh, that just made it sting more that this is what this guy does uh, when he gets the keys to the car, sort of thing. Yeah, uh, and it
1: kind of it kind of came across as like a, a sort of abject distaste for you as a player as it's like why do I want to feel like the the writer has some sort of uh gripe with me as a player just by playing the game that you know you put money into to buy an experience and then they kind of just turn it on back at you and just like yeah ultimately saying that like yeah I mean isn't all of this treasure hunting and like getting loot and stuff like ultimately pointless this is also dumb isn't it, it- and it just it reduces the experience in itself but also it's like when you're making jokes that are like referencing things that are in the real world through like mimetic humor that it it also just like rips you out of the world as well and it's like you know if your whole point is to get you immersed into a game and sort of ingratiate you in this world like why do you insist on ripping me out of it just for the sake of a dumb joke
0: well and I guess, you know, I don't want to get too bogged down in Borderlands, but we see the Borderlands franchise as it's continued from Borderlands 2 and it's like it's like the ouroboros snake constantly eating itself trying to be like, well, what what wacky and crazy idea can we just put in our game and it's like to the point where it's like I feel like nobody gives a shit about Borderlands as they did, you know, 10 years ago where, you know, everyone was singing the good graces of it. I mean, you know, I thought it was an enjoyable game, you know, despite it making me not want to enjoy it, sort of thing. But, like, you see, like, the rest of the franchise where it's like they keep trying to one up themselves in a way that just continues to fall flat in a very, in a way that is kind of comedic just outside of itself. Like, just seeing the Borderlands franchise just eat itself alive over and over again, where it's now making a, dungeons and dragons spin-off game using the borderlands mechanics and it's like it becomes like you know uh <clears throat> it becomes audrey looking in the mirror of twin peaks the return where it's like <laughs> yeah like you know it, what have i become sort of like moment uh, you know i i i, I don't want to get too ranty on borderlands but i guess the the ultimate point of what i'm trying to get is like katamari is a humorous game because i think at its core it is a humorous concept but it never it never tells the player hey isn't this a stupid concept hey uh isn't it just so like wacky and goofy that you know you play as a little shrimp uh and his dad is some like flamboyant like uh egotistical like uh just you know camp uh being isn't that just a funny idea like no katamari 100 takes its concept both se- uh, hopefully i make sense with this it's like a, it's a game that treats its concept 100 serious but the concept because it's 100 serious it becomes funny or something
1: yeah exactly it, it's <laughs> it's purely because it, it it grounds itself and treats its concepts seriously and doesn't wink and nudge the player constantly with its you know, obviously ridiculous um, nature of what it is and what you're doing that uh, it, yeah, it just comes across as very, like, sincere, really. Um, and it, um, it's very, yeah, it's it's a difficult line to stride with this kind of thing. And I think a lot of that just comes from, like, you know, just treat, treat your subject with some sort of degree of humility and the fact that, like, the game is constantly... And th- you, you see this with pretty much all of Takahashi's games that like there is such a childlike innocence to mm-hmm. uh, the way he makes his games and delivers his games and all of the themes that he talks about it, that it's hard not to get wrapped up into that emotion where uh, I, it it, it you're I'm laughing sorry. at it. But at the same time, it's like it has this like, yeah, beautifully childlike wonderment about the world and also the kind of things that you're doing within it. But you're laughing at it too. It's still funny.
0: Yeah, it, it okay. This made me laugh because I was just thinking about it. Have have do you know like the gameplay loop of Watam, you know, his most recent game or second most recent game? Uh um, no, I'm not too familiar it, so with that, it, honestly. So you play as a character from my memory, you play as a character where you're trying to bring other people together by holding hands and like sort of bring bring people sort of separate and together sort of thing. Of course, because we've been thinking about Kojima, it's like wow. what Tom is the second strand game ever made. <laughs> it's uh, but to your point, like T- Kenta Takahashi, I think for his, where he comes from as a game developer is a fascinating point of view because there's no one else like him in the industry, and he's honestly influenced a lot in the industry in in games. I think maybe not in the sort of aesthetic sense in the aesthetic realm, but in the very indie mentality of having a confident idea, having inspirations from all around you and creating something that means a lot to you. And it, and it, it will click with an audience. And suddenly now your product is considered one of the most beloved entries of a console. You know, Katamari sits alongside such, such tight. I mean, We were talking beforehand, you know, Katamari came out in 2004 and 2004 is one of the best years in gaming of all time. I mean, Mm -hmm. you have like Metal Gear Solid 3, Devil May Cry 3, you have Half-Life, Halo 2, you know, there's a Ratchet and Clank game that came out that year too. I mean, Burnout 3, Takedown came out that year. I mean, 2004 is a stacked year for gaming, you know games that have become integral to the story of games themselves and little old katamari is able to stand on its own and be considered one of the best games of all time i think speaks volumes to takahashi's unique point of view and how it influenced the whole indie genre as a whole i mean the indie boom started relatively right around when Katamari came out. You know, you saw the Xbox live arcade and PS PlayStation network store full of these inspired and unique games. I mean, I was playing journey the other day, which is one of my favorite games. Uh, And it's a very inspired indie game. I mean, sure. It had some Sony backing, but you know, it's a game where you only can jump and you can only talk to other players that randomly will just meet you in your journey. And you can only talk to them through chirping sounds, basically, and it's all about an experience. You know, in about an hour, hour and a half, you know, other, you know, that stu- that game company, which is their name, by the way, they're called that game company. You know, they have flower, which you play as a flower petal. Like, I think Kenta Takahashi's work with Katamari has had ripples through the industry, and I think you know, I I don't want to imagine a world where uh Katamari does does not exist because I think so many people have been inspired by this game this franchise without them even knowing about it and I think if there was a world in which Katamari did not exist I think that the world is a very grim world to live in
1: mm, yeah I think that it speaks to the um achievement that Katamari is able to have when you have such a stacked lineup of games in that year and it stands alone like a voice amongst the crowd really of where all of these games are definitely heading towards like the much more uh grandiose settings and there's like a lot more things mechanically that you can do in a lot of these games like you know how, how much something like san Andreas built on vice city at the time And um, I think Tony Hawk's Underground 2 came out this year as well, which built Mm -hmm. off the first game. And then you've got like MGS3 and Burnout 3 and Ratchet and Clank and stuff like that. And they they were just going into like, you know, bigger is better and more is more. And then you've got Katamari, which, you know, aesthetically is completely uh, contradicts everything else that's coming out that year. And then also mechanically speaking, it's like it doesn't get any more simple than that. And yet the fact that it's able to have uh, its cult-like success and then has pretty much gone on to be like celebrated as like one of the best games ever made um, is, it gives me a lot of hope for the, the fact that like this sort of thing is still achievable, um, even if in, in terms of uh, financial success in the gaming industry that um, people can make these kind of games and they'll be like a massive smash hit. And you still see this now and then with like particular indie games, like break through the kind of uh, A to A type barrier to entry of success that, that there is an, uh, around games now that, um, yeah. And, and also with, yeah, it's contributions towards the, like what uh, indie developers thought could be done with maximizing a game's potential on a small budget and, um yeah, I, the ripple effect that this game has had throughout um, gaming culture and, like, how we perceive games and then also, like, the potential of games and, you know, going back to our discussions on, like, the kind of freedom you can have in a game, it's it's all-encompassing, really. It, it Like, it, it becomes this centralising point in, you know, a, a personal history with games and also in the greater context of games as a medium as being, like, this really uh sort of it's a touchstone really yeah as as what can be done when um someone who's got a really like bizarre background when it comes to like not even really being interested in in making games initially just wanted to be like an artist and then comes out and then sort of takes his aesthetic ideas and then extrapolates that into mechanics and uh, the way it's conveyed and the way that it sounds and mm-hmm. um it yeah it it really gets a life of its own after its release and um, it kind of just goes back to the 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 importance of um drawing from life and having a sort of wholly unique quality in authorship to a game how much you're able to achieve with that and that like you don't necessarily need to be tied down to, the successes of other games that are popular in the current moment of games because it's constantly changing. And we find that mm-hmm. indie, indie games tend to set the precedent or at least the tone for what some games uh, end up being for what is considered the trend for the following few years. Mm-hmm. I mean, when we look at games like uh, the Battle Royale type games out of PUBG and stuff like that, and that's now like pretty much the standard of what a multiplayer game is now in terms of the big releases Mm -hmm. and there's many examples of that throughout the last few years where all of it just comes from an idea that's pulled off in in a modestly competent enough fashion and it gets popular with people that we see the big ripple effect it has uh on where games could potentially be up so like despite any grievances and um uh sort of cynicism I, I may have about games now and then in the current state it's like there's always room for something like a Katamari Damacy to come in and just exist and you yeah. get a <clears throat> sort of popular cult-like following and then out of that who knows what
0: happens really yeah I mean <laughs> I think that's honestly I think uh a great way to wrap up tonight's discussion I, I i think we covered a lot about katamari i mean it you wouldn't think that katamari would inspire such big brain moments and discussions but i mean katamari means a lot i think not to just you and me or anyone who's played it but i think to the industry as a whole owes a lot to katamari's willingness to do something different through the freedom that games offer not just as not just as players but as developers too and i can only hope that like in the in an age where it's all about maximizing the profit and keeping players invested for years and years and years and years that a game like katamari more games like katamari you know not necessarily in the style of katamari but more games inspired in the way Like Katamari, to just keep coming out in some form or some capacity. Because I think, because I think if the the spirit that is within this game were to continue to burn bright, I think the industry would be better. And I think that is a great way to say, wrap up tonight. I can't thank you enough, Fogbrain, for joining me tonight. This has been an absolute joy
1: yeah this was really fun i love talking about games in general and also talking about games with you sam because i think like (laughs) your perspective on games is something that's a little bit too rare for my liking i think more people should (laughs) think about games in this way (laughs) so
0: that's the goal of this show is to get people thinking about games you know in a way that isn't like a video essay or like an IGN review. Uh, But I think that is a great place to call it a night for the recording.